that follows. Welcome to the Mighty Eighth Podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. In this episode, we've come to the American Air Museum at Duxford in the east of England, home to the biggest collection of American military aircraft on public display outside the United States. And we're here outside the museum early on a February morning to talk about two heavy bombers, the workhorses of the mighty 8th Air Force during World War II, the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator. Mike, this is a very modern museum building designed by the British architect Norman Foster. It almost looks like a modern version of the blister hangars, a vast glass front which allows us to see in and see all the aircraft inside, but also allows us once we're inside to look out across the airfield yeah you're right about that uh, that similarity with a huge it's like a huge aircraft hangar or a massive nissen hut isn't it and uh, the, the natural light plays well and when you're walking past you get that head-on view of a b17 or a b24 whatever you happen to see and the suspended aircraft from the ceiling we've got them all here i mean p47 p51 B-17, B- oh, B-24, all the numbers, and also uh, a lot of the small things you don't think about, like the bulldozers, the aircraft tugs, etc., the bomb trolleys. Everything you, every piece of the story that you want to see is going to be here, and we're going to be able to walk in between them before the museum opens up and have a, a really good look around and, and some thought-provoking discussion about the, uh, the two aircraft that in particular we're here to talk about. And before we do that, leading up to the entrance of the American Air Museum is a, is a memorial sculpture in glass lining the route. It's one of the most simplest and I think most sobering memorials I've seen in all the battlefields and museums I've been to over, my, over the years. Simple in that you, you see through it, there's a silhouette of every single aircraft. Almost 6,500 8th Air Force aircraft, the 9th Air Force, and even the US Navy aircraft lost in the Northwest Europe theatre. Uh, and it, it, it's a fitting testimony to the, the, the casualty, the numbers of men who died in the air war over, over Europe encapsulated in this inspiring and quite evocative memorial. And we're going to see all of those aircraft, but we're... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're here really to talk about uh, two particular aircraft, and this is the only place in the UK where we can stand in between those two, and that's the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator. And it's going to be a real treat to, uh, to have them to ourselves because we've got unrestricted access, and we're going to meet Dr Hattie Hearn, the curator of the American Air Museum here, and uh, talk about the bombers that were the mainstay of the 8th Air Force Bomber Command during World War II. 52 panels then engraved with the outlines of aircraft, one for each plane missing in action in operations flown by American Air Forces from Britain during the Second World War. Mike, this is one of the most hotly contested debates when it comes to the Mighty Eighth. Which heavy bomber was best, the Flying Fortress or the Liberator? 
Welcome to the American Air Museum. We've come into the museum now, planes suspended in front of the huge glass-fronted wall looking out over the airfield. It's an amazing light and airy space. And right at the front of the museum, here are the two planes that we're looking for, the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator. Hattie Hearn, the B-17 is arguably the most celebrated bomber of all time. It's instantly recognisable. And I think if you asked somebody to draw you a picture of a World War II heavy bomber, the four engines, the sleek outline, this would be it. Absolutely. I think if you're going to call any bomber iconic, it would have to be the B-17. Obviously, we see it in cultural depictions of the air war. um, But also just looking at it, you've got the sleek design, as you said. Um, It's almost Art Deco inspired. Certainly a plane of its time. Art Deco inspired. It was designed in the 1930s. Yeah, so it was designed in the mid 30s as an advanced bomber. And when it was first unveiled in 1935 and took its first public flight in Seattle, uh, everyone was in awe of this absolutely beautiful plane. Um, It could actually go faster than a lot of the fighters of the day. And because it had this fantastic armament, it was nicknamed the Flying Fortress by one of the reporters who first saw it on that day. And it certainly lived up to that name. And Mike, Boeing was, uh, was quick to see the value of that name, the nickname given to it by Richard Williams, that reporter from the Seattle Times, who described it as a 15-tonne flying fortress. It very much was bristling with armaments. Yeah, there's two schools of thought about where that actually came from, whether it was a fortress, because originally it was designed to be for coastal defence, like a coastal fortress that would sink ships. But really, most people agree that it, it's about the, the fact the number of machine guns it had and how fast it flew and the idea that it would be able to beat off any of the fighters of the day quite easily, fly faster, higher, and if they did even manage to get close, it would shoot them down. And let's go and have a close look and uh, see what we can see from this, uh, this B-17 flying fortress here. If we start at the, at the front of the plane, Hattie, this is, uh, this is a, B-17, a B-17G model, which has the, the chin turret. Yes, so, so that's the main difference between the G and earlier models. Um, It has this remotely controlled chin turret, which would have been operated by the bombardier sitting in the nose of the plane. And that uh, that gives it that forward-facing armament, the uh, two M2 machine guns there, Mike? It does, and and it it, it cures a blind spot, because if you look at the the nose now, we're right beneath the nose, it's fantastic, isn't it? We've got sunshine nose in the morning, right under the nose of a B-17G. The chin turret's right in front of us, and you can see those two 50 caliber machine guns. But above them, you can see each side, there are another two 50 calibers, but they don't fire straight forward. Uh, And and above above and back beyond the uh, two pilot seats, there's the upper turret, and that can fire forward, but not right down level laterally in a level field so if you approach the b-17 at just the right angle head on the crew can't fire at you there's there's a blind spot there's an open open chink in the armor of this flying fortress there's a way in and the luftwaffe pilots work that out pretty quickly attacking from 12 o'clock high straight onto the b-17 the the b-17 hattie we've said it was designed in the 1930s it was very much future-proofed it was capable of being modified and adapted as different needs arose throughout the war yeah that's right and you did see these modifications constantly rolled out as this um, aircraft saw service saw action and it was adapted to the needs and we do see that in in the chin turret um, so when the germans became savvy to this achilles heel in the b-17 and started doing frontal attacks that's when we see the chin turret brought in and it did offer that extra layer of protection and and suddenly that threat was lessened um, and we saw a lot less b-17s going down due to these full frontal attacks so we've got the full frontal guns there in the chin turret mike what other armaments did it have let's look from where we are now from the nose as we move back from the nose so we've got the chin turret two uh, extra guns on on the top on each side of the, of the nose cone uh, behind the pilots we've got the upper turret and then we move back underneath the aircraft we've got the the ball turret and up above the ball turret there are two waist guns and then carrying on back through the aircraft we've got another two guns in the tail it's a total of 13 machine guns uh, for, per airframe. And, of course, the whole concept of these uh, combat box defences that every aircraft's got that many guns, but they're all looking after each other. It's collective defence. The tighter you are together, like a, a phalanx of aircraft or a, 
the metaphor I've heard used is, is a wagon train moving across the prairie or a ship, a, a naval convoy. But you've got to stay tight and you've got to look for each other and, and be very well disciplined in, in your fire and interlocking and overlaying your arcs of fire so that you protect each other. So that if you're a German fighter, you've got to be really good. And if you, if you come within the range of the guns into the combat box of the B-17s, you're going to get hit. So you've got to be prepared to take that and, and think of a way to avoid that fire. It's a huge deterrent. So that's how the, uh, that's how the planes are, are protecting each other, protecting one another when they're flying in formation, flying as a, as a squadron. Hattie, what about the bomb load? So the B-17 had a max bomb load of £8,000 and they were arranged in a single bomb bay so they would be stacked up on top of each other. It doesn't sound very much, does it? £8,000, quite a light load. Compared to other heavy bombers, 8,000 wasn't a huge amount. Uh, But that, again, ties into this idea of precision bombing. They didn't really think that they actually needed that much of a heavy bomb load because if they could hit their targets accurately, then they would have enough firepower to destroy that target. So this idea, Mike, of quality, not quantity, when it comes to bombing, if we we are standing still below the nose cone of the aircraft, you can see the Norden bomb site there. You can, and it's all about the site. I mean, the weapons and the crew and all that's all about getting to the target. And Hattie said about the bomb load, which is predominantly, uh, usually uh, 500-pound bombs. So any multiple of that. But 8,000 bomb load is maximum. So if you're, but if you're on a long-range target, you need more fuel, you're going to have to compensate and reduce the bomb load. And or incre- it, it, There's a balance between fuel and bomb load uh, that has to be considered all the time. And that's the mission planner's job, to work that out. And it is all about daylight precision bombing. And at the start, we're bombing by visu- visually. Later on, we've got radar assistance. But uh, so the, the bombardier in the nose cone here, he's got to be able to see the target to, uh, to aim it and to release his bombs. And we often see uh, missions that are uh, abandoned because they can't see the target or they have to go to an alternate target or come back and salvo the bombs into the channel. It's interesting if we're going to talk about the Liberator later, which has got a good bomb load as well. The Liberator crews often refer to the B-17 as being a, a heavy bomber with a light bomb load, light bomber, light bomber bomb load. So there's a little bit, little bit of banter going on there. And, and certainly the RAF crews with the Lancaster with its phenomenal bomb load would, would scoff at the, the light bomb load of the B-17. But it goes back to what Hattie said and what you said about if you are bombing accurately, which is what the whole basis of American doctrine is, then that doesn't matter because you're going to hit the target. So we're already seeing then some sort of uh, allegiance to the, to the plane in which you flew by the, uh, from the crews which, which flew in them. If you were a crew on a B-17, you're going to be passionate about that plane. It, it, it's looking after you. You're going to be wanting to, to look after it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really what it all comes down to. If you were trained on a B-17, you just have a natural affinity with that plane. And that's true because you, you go through your basic training on, on that aircraft type and you, you literally learn about it inside out. You know it intimately, every system on it, etc. And, it, and it, the B-17 is certainly a reliable aircraft. It's, uh, it's, it's very rugged and it has that reputation for, for getting you home. Mm, that's That's... A good discussion point because, you know, it's, it's a very photogenic aircraft. We'll talk about that later. So there are more media crews around around B-17s. So there's a lot more evidence of damaged B-17s coming home. But is that because there was more media focus or is that because there were more B-17s that got home statistically? I think it's about the same between the B-17 and the B-24. So that's, uh, that's very much the outside of the plane, Hattie. What about the inside? So inside the plane, um, we are looking at extremely cramped conditions. I think when you look at the B-17 on the outside, you see this enormous aircraft. But actually, when you're inside there, there's not a lot of room to move, especially up front in, in the nose and in the cockpit area of, of the aircraft. So, so these guys are obviously wearing their heavy flight suits and they would have to manoeuvre their ways into, into position. Um, and if they're actually moving around in flight, that was extremely difficult. Um, and you've also got to remember that, that these guys were attached to their aircraft. So they were, would be being plugged into the intercom system. They also would have been plugged in um, to the oxygen system as well. And um, also, most likely, the, the heating system so, but that would have heated their suits. So moving around the plane's difficult. Um, they, they've, you've obviously got extreme conditions when you're actually at altitude. So they would most likely be flying about 25,000 feet. Um, and in winter, uh, you can imagine temperatures at those altitudes got to below uh, minus 
50 Celsius at some points, which is um, absolutely unimaginable conditions. Um, for, for certain positions, such as the waste gunners, you also had this slipstream flowing through the plane um, at kind of 200 miles per hour air coming in. So it was extremely inhospitable conditions to, to fly in, and they would have to endure these sort of, sort of conditions for, for the most of the flight um, and if you if you imagine that actually the two thirds of the the mission is actually just getting to and from the target um, and you have, so you have in this kind of heightened sense of anticipation and you'd have this this tension as you you waited for for enemy action so it was an emotionally and physically exhausting time for for anyone on the crew Mike, in, in terms of the, the crew in the plane, there's a difference between the enlisted men and the, and the officers. Can you ex- explain that? Yeah, there's a physical location for a start. I mean, the officers are, are, are flying the aircraft, pilot and co-pilot. The navigator and bombardier are officers, so all the forward end, and they're slightly older. They've gone through the, uh, the officer cadets training scheme to get where they are. And then it's, it's interesting because then you work your way be a bit to the rear of the aircraft that's where you find your enlisted men and Hattie's just talked very very well about uh, physical and emotional strains of being on the aircraft I think also if you are sat side by side as pilot and co-pilot you, you've got someone to, to refer to the whole time you've got that moral assurance of having someone sat next to you same in the nose of the two officers the bombardier and the navigator they, they can see each other the waste gunners can see each other but you know all of these things that are going all this psychological pressure and physical and, uh, pressure that's on you throughout the mission is, is, is bearing down on you the whole time but you've got company if you're the tail gunner or the ball turret gunner you're on your own I mean you, it's, other than what comes through your headphones you're on your own so you're look, you, you, you've got the added pressure of is everyone still there is everyone okay and, and the radio operator does a lot of that he's the one he's the guy who's because a lot of these missions are done on radio silence and they're not talking in between aircraft it's inside the crew and the radio operator his primary function is to make sure everyone's okay checking in because at that altitude, if you're off oxygen for even the shortest time, or your suit fails and you freeze to death, it, it, that can take that can take seconds, minutes at the most. So um, it's really important that people talk to each other. And when you get on that aircraft, you you trust the people around you. So being part of that crew is implicitly part of the success of the mission. You have to trust everyone around you, and they need to trust you too. As we walk around to the yeah. back of the plane, Mike, the, 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 the B-17, there's no bad angle when you look at it, is there? No, when it, when it evolves through the different uh, models from, you know, E, F and G, it, it just gets better looking and, and it just looks right. It looks, it looks like it does what it says on the tin. And, and, and that's what I think is important but in engineering terms. Um, if you think about the, uh, the, the B-17, the Sherman tank, uh, the, the P-51 Mustang, all of these American products as they are, they look right. They look like they're going to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, I come from the world of the Apache helicopter, and you looked at that and you thought, yeah, that, that, that's a gunship, and it looks like it, how it should be. And, and, the, and the, um, the B-17 evolves. You know, that, that large tail fin that we get here, it looks like it should fly, and it looks like it's going to fly, and it's going to fly well. And on the tail fin of the B-17, the square C denoting the bomb group. In this case, the square C denotes the 96th bomb group, and our B-17 has those uh, the, t- the tail markings of that group. However, this um, particular B-17 didn't actually see action dur- during the Second World War. It was built um, just towards the end of the war and then put into storage um, before eventually being sold off to the owner of San Miguel Brewery. And he actually used this as his private plane and um, toured the world. He had his own private lounge and kitchen and bar in the, in the B-17. Um, and then it was eventually sold off to some missionaries who used it to travel the world and, uh, and preach the Bible. Um, and then eventually it ended up here in Duxford um, in the 1970s, where it was completely restored to its uh, original configuration. Um, and I'm, I may be biased, but um, this is certainly one of the best restored B-17s um, in terms of its interior. Um, so if you, if you go inside, actually, it's got all of its original fittings um, and equipment. So, so we're very proud to have it here in the American Air Museum. If we come to the side, we can see the Emerson electric type uh, lower ball turret. We've got one actually outside the plane as well. So we can have a really, really good look at it, Mike. Yeah, and and everybody talks about the ball turret, you know, and and the B-17 
be the shortest member of the crew being or the shortest gunner being selected to be a ball turret gunner and what that meant and there's some great books and accounts about what it was like to be underneath a b-17 flat coming up and looking down through your feet at the target below and it's, it's fascinating to think how they how they actually targeted it because you steered the gun by hand left and right and you controlled the gun sight and the way the gun sight was brought onto the target with your feet left and right. So the foot pedals and hand pedals at the same time to, to, to move the turret around. And you climbed in there, and usually without a parachute, although some of the, some of the ball turret gunners managed to take a, a chest spare turret uh, parachute in with them. So if the aircraft was hit and was going down, you had to get out of this turret, put on your parachute while the aircraft spiralling down, spiralling down to the ground and probably still under fire or, or, or on fire, um, so it was quite a thing to do, but um, there's a lot of mythology about the casualty rate amongst ball, ball turret gunners because it said, oh yeah, it's most vulnerable. Actually, to try and get to a ball turret in a, in a German fighter, why would you do that? There's, you attack the tail or you attack head on or attack from blood. So it wasn't as, it was any, no more dangerous than any of the other gunner positions. And when you look at the statistics for casualty rates amongst the gunners, you know, the waste gunner was not a good place to be. The, the ball turret gunner had a degree it's quite hard to get to the degree of armour in, in the turret itself it's just psychologically curling yourself up into a little ball and, and hanging underneath an aircraft while Messerschmitts and Fokker will stream past like Cylons you know I've put a bit of a sci-fi thing in there but you know, of course this is definitely the inspiration for the, the turrets on the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars uh, so as a design on the nose of the B-29 as well so these things all art repeats itself doesn't it it's just a it's an overused word it's particularly in this episode iconic but the ball turret is an iconic piece of the the story and and don't forget it's also on the b24 planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. We've come now to the B-24 Liberator Hattie, a much different proposition to the B-17. It looks chunky. It's not as good looking as the B-17. It looks very, very solid. Yes. I I hate to be cruel, but you could describe it as as the kind of ugly sister of the B-17. It's got this very boxy fuselage and it's got these very high wings as well. And that all really originates from its its designers. Um, So Consolidated uh, were were the aircraft manufacturers who designed the the B-24. And they were actually most famous for designing um, flying boats. And you certainly have a lot of aspects of flying boats in the design of the B-24. And you've got this almost kind of bathtub-like body and then this high wings, which are very common features that you find on flying boats. Mike, Hatt is absolutely right. The B-24 Liberator, it's got a snub nose. It's not elegant. It doesn't look as streamlined, certainly, as the B-17. As Hattie says, consolidated, famous or renowned for making seaplanes or uh, flying boats. What's your take on this? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, I think. Um, And um, I agree, you know, the B-17 looks right. The B-24 looks right in a different way. Uh, I mean... Consolidated were asked originally to, to license build B-17s and they went away and said, came back and said, actually, we can build you a better bomber that will fly higher, faster and carry a bigger bomb load. And it was for the RAF at the time. because It was originally you know, it was the RAF and the French Air Force who ordered the, the Liberator. 
And they went, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll have some of that. Builders it. So they came, came back with a B24 idea. And, and Hattie's absolutely right. If you look at the side on, if you look at the B24, you can see it's got a boat like hull to it. It's, it's, it's got a fly, it's got a high wing angle. But um, they went away and came back with um, a bomber that could be mass produced. Let's not forget the B24 is conceived later than the B-17. The B-17 is mid-30s, and it's uh, we're going to build this battle-winning, cutting-edge technology bomber that can fly higher and faster than anybody else. And, and, they, and they come up with a fortress. The B-24 is later, and it's being produced against a much tighter time frame. And it's at the time when it's all, OK, people who are going to build these things aren't necessarily aircraft producers. I mean, Ford Motor Company will be heavily involved in producing the Liberator. So it's got to be able to be constructed in a mass production way by factories that are not as aviation aware and skilled in in that type of work so the b24 fits the bill it is bigger it it flies higher it flies faster and it has its fans people talk about it as being the ugly sister etc but it's uh, it's a different answer to the same question uh we can get into uh, how it handles later on in in the in the pod but um it has its place in history certainly and Hattie, tell me about this one here, this uh, version of the Liberator. The, the most uh, startling thing for me is that while the flying fortress we have here next to it is painted, this is bare metal, bare aluminium. Yeah, this was the case for B-17s and B-24s later on in the war. So they, they came off the production line and they weren't painted that familiar olive drab that we can used to seeing. And that was really because there was no need. Because at this point, um, the Allies had air superiority or were certainly on their way to, to gaining that. And there wasn't this camouflage need you might have with olive drab. So they decided um, to just go with bare metal. Uh, and, and another reason for that was it was more fuel efficient, um, not to have a painted plane and also they, they just realized that actually um, it's all well and good having an olive drab plane on the ground um, if you've got if you've got a danger of of having your airfields bombed but actually when you're in the air you've got contrails trailing behind you and you're in a massive formation of bombers you don't really need to be camouflaged so so they just decided to, to save a bit of time a bit of money and a bit of fuel and um, leave them as bare metal and uh, when you say uh, it uses less fuel that's because uh, we don't think as, of, of painters weighing very much but when, you, when you've got this area of metal to paint, if you can save on the paint, you're saving a lot of weight. Absolutely. And really, if it comes down to it and, and you're running low on fuel, um, you're, you're actually trying to save as much weight as possible. So often crews would, would sling out, shoot their own shoes, they would sling out anything they could from, from their plane. So if you could actually just save on a little bit of fuel just by not having paint in the first place, then, then that's obviously a benefit. The side view of the Liberator, it is very chunky, it looks very solid, it does look like it will get you home, but there's no, on this plane Hattie, there's no ball turret. No. In earlier versions of the B-24, there, there wasn't a ball turret, there was this kind of tunnel window as it were um, with, with a, a machine gun pointing down but ball turrets were later installed on, on B-24s and they were actually retractable so they could be brought back up into the aircraft which was uh, not the case on the B-17. And Mike that's going to make the aircraft more streamlined as well. If we also walk around the side we can see that the wings are fixed in a different position they're across the top of the aircraft rather than coming out of the side or out of the bottom of the aircraft. Yeah, it's part of the design f- feature of the, of the Liberator. It's, it's a high wing, which has its advantages. However, at altitude, and when we're talking about it, one of the one of the reasons that German fighter pilots preferred to attack Liberators is because they had a, always seem to have a looser formation, and because of this, the the spoil and turbulence off the off these wings, they couldn't get as close together. Their combat boxes were looser. It's that legacy from the. Uh, the design mindset of Consolidated being based in flying boats because flying boats have their high wing to keep the engines up above the water and to make sure you get the lift you need as you taxi along in, on the water. You, get, you need enough space under the wing to get the air flow to get lift. And that also has an advantage if you're operating from rough airstrips with dust, etc. The higher off the ground your engines are, the less dust you ingest. So the Liberator had a good reputation when it was deployed to Africa and places like that. And it's got a, a, a good undercarriage. Uh, it, it, could, it could work off very, in a very austere conditions, probably better than the B-17, which wasn't that bad anyway, but uh, the B-24 was, was better in that respect. So this is very much in its DNA, its, its flying boat DNA, and um, it's just a factor of design. 
And another factor of the design is such that it is able to carry a heavier bomb load than the B-17. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's just a bigger, more powerful aircraft. So when you calculate your bomb load, you need to know, you need to know the range of the target. So therefore, that d- discerns how much fuel you have. If it's a long-range target, you, you might need ferry tanks or fill up those extra tanks in the wings, etc. The B-24 has more capacity than the B-17. It's got more range. So it can carry more fuel. It's got more power in its engine, so it can, it can still carry the same bomb load. So they're both carrying the same type of bomb, 500-pound bombs, a mix of whatever you decide it's going to be, general explosive, high explosive, uh, you know, all those different types of uh, pe- de- penetration weapons they've got, t- different fuses, etc. They're, they're carrying the same ordnance. It's just about how much of that ordnance you can carry to get to the target. And the B-24 consistently could carry more bombs than a B-17 to the same target. And both planes would have been using the Norden bomb site. They'd be both working on the same principle of daylight strategic bombing, where accuracy is paramount. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a different answer to the same question. The only thing is, as its design is intended, it, it, it's more powerful, got a longer range, and it can generally carry a bigger bomb load. So the same number of crew in the Liberator as in the B-17 Flying Fortress Hattie. What was, what was life like for the crew in the Liberator? Yeah, it was very similar. And um, when you read accounts of combat um, from 8th Air Force veterans, it's really hard to actually distinguish whether they're a B-17 crew member or a B-24 crew member. So there were certainly the same challenges in terms of the extreme cold, the extreme discomfort. Um, like on the B-17, there's not really any comfortable place um, in this aircraft. So in terms of the experience of what it was like to actually be inside one of these in combat, like you said, we've got a 10-man crew um, and, and, every, and very similar roles. So we've, we've still got the pilots, we've got the bombardier, navigator, radio operator and gunners. Um, and they, they all kind of take up very similar positions on the plane as well to the B-17. The main difference, uh, one of the main differences is in the nose and the cockpit area of, of the B-24. Um, it's slightly more congested. So you've got, you've got the co-pilot and the pilot, um, flight engineer and radio operator all kind of crammed into a relatively tight space. And, and this certainly had problems if you, you did need to bail out because there was a lot of congestion. So in terms of the experience of what it was like to actually be inside one of these in combat, it was very, very similar to the B-17. And this B-24 Liberator here, Hattie, how did this one come to the museum? So this B-24 never saw wartime service. It was built in March 1945. And then at the end of the war, it was um, actually used as a, as a flying ice research laboratory. Um, so it went over the Arctic and conducted a lot of uh, experiments to do with, with the ice. And then in the 1950s, it was um, decommissioned and brought to Lackland Air Force Base, where it stood on the edge of the parade square for many years before it was eventually brought over here to Duxford. Um, and it's been on display here since 1999. Um, it's been painted to represent uh, an aircraft of the 392nd bomb group uh, flying out of Wendling and it's uh, it's got the name Dugan and Dugan actually did did fly um, with the 392nd um, and that nickname I think came about because of the pilot had had Irish heritage and um, that was the nickname that he, he'd been given. Hence the four-leaf clover on the nose of the aircraft. We've had a walk around both the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator the fantastic thing about this museum is that the way it's designed, we can actually walk around the perimeter of the museum and get a bird's eye view, which gives us the opportunity to see the aircraft from above. Let's go and do that. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. We've come up the walkway around the perimeter of the museum and from here we can see both the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator, but we can also see the American Roll of Honour. Hattie, this is a particularly poignant uh, memorial within the museum itself. Yes, it certainly is. 
The American Air Museum as a whole um, really stands as a memorial to the 30,000 men and women of the um, US Army Air Force who died whilst flying from Britain. But we also have their names listed on this memorial. And what makes it different from, from most Second World War memorials is that it is a dynamic virtual memorial. So we have the names um, rolling on these um, television screens and it's actually connected to our website and our online database so we are constantly updating our records and I'm regularly adding new names to this memorial um, of new people we found who who died um, flying from Britain or or in service um, in the UK and so it is truly a dynamic memorial and it's probably the most accurate memorial of its type in the world. For visitors coming to the museum obviously they can see it but you can also access it in a different way. Absolutely. So the Roll of Honour draws data from our website, AmericanAirMuseum.com, and on there we have a database containing the names of almost everyone who served um, in Britain with the US Army Air Force. And we also have the Roll of Honour there, so you can see who died and and on what day. And I, I really think that that it's so important to have this living memorial and it's something that we're, we're constantly evolving we also have um, lots of contributions from family members who might have um, unearthed a, a, a photo of a loved one and they send that to us or upload it onto our website so it's it's certainly worth checking out to actually read through some of the personal stories of these men and women who served here many of whom sadly died whilst in service in the uk And Mike, looking at the role of honour, you can certainly see how crew members of both the B-17 and the B-24, why they were so attached to their respective planes. Yeah, in war terms, they'd grown up with those particular aircraft. They were dedicated to them. Certainly the ground crew uh, became really uh, attached to their their particular aircraft on on that hard stand, more than they were to the crew sometimes. The crews rotated through and out and all got killed or wounded or went home, whereas the aircraft was all... And other types of aircraft where you probably didn't look beyond your own hard stand, even outside your own squadron. So it was all about your aircraft, whether that be a B-24 or a B-17, that was the one that mattered. And both planes had their advantages and disadvantages when it came to keeping the crew safe. Yeah, so survivability is important. We talked about armament, we talked about fuel, we talked about range, all those things. But in the end, if you're in that aircraft, survivability is key. If you went into the water in both types, your chances of survival were very different. A B-17 with its uh, mid-cord wings, when it ditched into the water, those wings would keep you afloat a bit longer, and the crew were generally above the water anyway because of where the wings were in relation to the fuselage. Uh, So you had much more time to get out of a B-17 than a B-24. And the reason for that is because the high wings of a B-24 mean that the fuselage sits below the wing so that immediately you hit the water and one of the design problems was that the uh, the bomb bay collapsed almost immediately in water the water rushed into the fuselage and the high wings did settle mean meant that the liberator settled almost immediately underwater so you had much less time to get out of a of a b24 couple that with the fact that you the congestion that Hattie spoke about where you're the certainly the front end crew are all more closely confined and there are less doors getting out against rushing water is very difficult to do so your chances are much reduced in a b24 if you ditch in the sea and Hattie that's going to be a major consideration for air crew for planes coming back from a bombing mission they've got to get across the English Channel they've got to get across the, the North Sea to get home so water and your ability to survive a ditching is going to be a major consideration Absolutely. I think it was one of the, the paramount fears of crews that, that they might have to ditch into the English Channel. And um, especially early on in the, in the air war, survival rates um, were actually incredibly low if you had to ditch. So having that little bit of extra time to bail out of your aircraft would have been seen as vital. But I think this um, argument about survivability is, again, it all kind of comes down to perception. Um, so we tell the story of Bill Toombs, and he was a, a pilot who flew both B-17s and B-24s, and he actually trained on B-24s, and that obviously maybe gave him slight bias, but when he kind of did his evaluation, he, he actually said he felt safer in a B-24. And again, it's, it's most likely because he, it was the, it's the plane he knew and he felt most confident in, and I think that's what it really 
really comes down to. If you had a good crew who knew what they were doing, it didn't really matter which aircraft you were in. You just needed to have that knowledge um, and that confidence in your own abilities and that ability to work as a crew. And that was more important than if you had a few extra seconds to get out of the plane. Hattie, the, the B-17 also had a reputation for being able to limp home no matter what. It, it would fly on a single engine almost. Yeah, that flying fortress reputation was really hammered home in press photographs of the time, which showed these battered B-17s limping home. Um, there, there's one example of a B-17 actually that, that crash-landed, had a belly-up landing, and they counted 1,300 bullet holes and flak holes on the aircraft and it still managed to make it home but again I think there's uh, an element of of the media representation um, of the two aircraft that really plays a hand here so earlier on in 1942 1943 most of the media presence was around B-17 bases so the play aircraft that appeared in the news reels and in, in the newspapers was the B-17 so naturally you're going to see more B-17s um, in the press that have come home bullet hole ridden and flak hole ridden compared to the b24 and i think that's really helped develop this whole popular um conception that the b17 was the more more rugged more indestructible aircraft when as mike was saying statistics showed that they both have very similar survivability rates so mike does the liberator get a fair press i don't think it does i think um, we tend to everyone it's it's more photogenic sister the b17 Hattie's just made the point about media i think that's very true i mean let's think about this our understanding is based on what we see on a screen so you know 12 o'clock high b17 memphis bell b17 and of course most recently masters of the air b17 and the liberator really doesn't get a look in does it and Mike, you say Memphis Bell. Memphis Bell has that reputation, is known for being the first heavy bomber to complete successfully 25 missions. But in actual fact, that wasn't true. It's actually a Liberator which was first to 25 missions. Yeah, Memphis Bell wasn't even the first B-17 to do 25 missions. There, there was another, but um, you're right. Uh, the first aircraft to complete 25 uh, bombing missions was a B-24, so uh, called Hot Flush. Uh, but that crashed after those missions, so it didn't get the exposure. So again, a B-17 steals the show from, from a B-24. Hattie, this sort of reinforces what you've said, that, uh, that, that it is about the media. It's almost a, a marketing triumph, the, uh, the, 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 the B-17. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, there was an indication of that when the B-17 took its first flight in Seattle and it got all of that press attention. I think it was always destined to be the star of the show. And... And it's a real shame, actually, because the B-24 flew the same missions. It, it took the same hits and took the same casualties. And it's, it's worth remembering that actually the B-24 was the most produced bomber of the entire war. And uh, these things saw service in every theatre um, with every arm of the, the US military. They also flew with the RAF um, and they were pivotal in, in a number of different roles. Um, not least as a transport role and um, before America even entered the war in um, closing that mid-Atlantic gap. So I don't think we can judge the B-24 solely on its experiences with the 8th Air Force. Um, but in the broader scheme of the second world war it did play a major role and i think we really should be judging it on on the whole story and mike said so that so the b-17 the flying fortress very very popular with hollywood and yet the most famous perhaps pilot of the liberator was from hollywood himself the actor james stewart jimmy stewart was uh, he saw active service and was a was a b-24 pilot Oh, real time. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart's story is, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and he, he was on the cusp of being made a group commander, a bomb group commander, t- just before the war ended. Uh, he was uh, qualified to instruct on the B-17 and the B-24 and was a massive B-24 exponent. He rated the B-24 and uh, was a squadron commander, knew that aircraft intimately, and one of the most famous incidents of his career, which is totally out of character, was him beating up the tower at Old Buckingham to, to wake up his, his previous squadron commander, because he, he flew that aircraft and threw it around like a fighter. So, yeah, he, he was um, rather like the B-24 itself. Stuart was understated, just got on with the job and didn't make a fuss and didn't want the limelight. He just flew his missions and flew them well.
Well, as the museum starts to open, I think it's probably about time, Mike and Hattie, let's go and uh, grab ourselves a coffee and try and reach a a conclusion and a verdict on which was the better plane, the B-17 Flying Fortress or the B-24 Liberator. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, the planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. We've come now to the cafe in the American Air Museum and Hattie, Mike, it's time to reach some kind of verdict on which was the best heavy bomber. Was it the B-17 Flying Fortress or was it the B-24 Liberator? Hattie, you grew up in East Anglia. You're from Bungie. You're from 2nd Air Division Territory. That's very much B-24 Liberator country. I am, yes, yeah. Um, I grew up not far from um, Flixton, which w- uh, was a B-24 group. And I, I think in, in that respect, actually, my experience, first experiences of the air war really revolved around the B-24. And that was the image that I had in my head of a heavy bomber. And... I think that's that's part of this whole argument, really. It really does depend from person to person. It's a very subjective question. So growing up close to an old B-24 base, um, I had a natural affinity with, with the B-24, and, uh, and that was kind of the, the image that I associated with the 8th Air Force. But actually kind of learning a little bit more about the story, and I'm a volunteer at the 100 Bomb Group Memorial Museum, so obviously I have a, a bit of an attachment with the B-17 from that perspective as well. So I, I find it really difficult to actually have to, to pick between the two. What it comes down to is that survivability. And because the B-17 had, had the better survivability rate in terms of actually fly, if I had to choose between flying in, in the B-17 or B-24, I'd have to go with the B-17. But both bombers performed um, amazingly well considering the circumstances. And we've got to look at the wider picture. The B-24 didn't just perform in the European theatre. It carried out a, a variety of roles across the, the war. So it's um, important to, to bear that in mind when you're kind of evaluating the two. So yeah, I think the, the jury's out on this one. <laughs> Not quite sure. Uh, I'll have to hand that one over to Mike <laughs> see what he has to say. Mike, uh, is, it, is it very much a head versus heart decision, do you think? I think that's a really good way of putting it, head versus heart. Which one would you go with? And, and Hattie's quite right in all that she just said about the Liberator and where you're from. I mean, I think um, it's the question, isn't it? Which is the better bomber? So statistically, or, you know, the, the Liberator did so much more anti-submarine work, bridging the Atlantic Gap, Operation Tidal Wave, Pulaski oil fields, that's Liberators, it's not B-17s. And I think what Hattie just said was important as well. Which one would you rather be in on a mission? If you had to climb in tomorrow morning and fly to Schweinfurt, Regensburg or somewhere, which one would you like to rather be in? And, I, my, and that, my head says that's going to be the B-17. Probably my heart says that's going to be a, a B-17. But if you look at it, zoom out a bit and say, which is the better bomber? Well, quantity, B-24. Yeah, it's easier to build, there's lots more of them, it's more versatile. It did things that the B-17 could not do. So if you're talking about technically what is the better aircraft, then maybe the B-24 edges it in its adaptability and the many, many different roles that it could do in the places it went. And it, it endured in the Indian Air Force much longer after the war than the B-17 was still in military service. So you could, you could argue that, that point of view. But as a punching your way into the Third Reich in a fortress, I think, you know, it's the B-17. So if I was backed into a corner or had to fly tomorrow, I'd climb into a B-17. But I would still say, if you said to me, force me to say, what's the better bomber? It's so close. It, it, it is so close. And, and, and the quantity and how many B-24s you can build... Did that make a difference to the outcome of the war? And let's not—we've not—we're only talking about the Eighth Air Force. That's the thing. 
talk about the Pacific and all that, it's the B24, hands down. So if you cha- change the question to what's the better bomber for the 8th Air Force, I'm going to say the B-17. So change the question to, the, to, to, to suit the answer that you want to give. I think this is obviously a debate that is going to run and run and, uh, and has done for years and years. And as we said right at the beginning of this episode of the Mighty Eights podcast, it is one of the most hotly debated questions. I think as more and more school children come into the museum today, it's probably time to draw this episode of the Mighty Eights podcast to a close. Thank you very much for listening. Do remember to like and subscribe to the Mighty Eights podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, Dr. Hattie Hearn, curator of the American Air Museum here at Duxford, thank you very much for joining us and thank you for showing us around the American Air Museum. It's a fantastic space and a great memorial to all those who served in the Mighty Eights during World War II. And for now, that's it for this episode of the Mighty Eights. I'm Johan Tasker. Goodbye. I'm Mike Peters. Goodbye. <laughs>